This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. There are occasions that should unite families, but sometimes when things go wrong, family folklore is made. What happened is told forevermore. Inbi Nimi has written about a family who have many such stories. Welcome, Inbi. Thanks for having me, Jane. The last occasion that gets the family together is the funeral. Who has died? Okay, so the two sisters, Nicole and Samantha, their mother, Tina, has just passed away. And I don't feel like that's a major spoiler. That's the second chapter. So, <laughs> But, you know, they're, they're both daughters or both sisters have very different feelings about Tina's passing and actually have had um, quite different roles in Tina's last days. Tina, the mother, was an alcoholic. Look, you don't write about her with a back history or even give her any guilt. How did she get into the character of Tina, the mother? It's interesting that you should ask that because uh, at one stage I was heavily considering writing Tina's perspective. Maybe not from, you know, in her last days, but from her youth, just put up against or side by side with the, the past of the sisters. But then I got this idea that as a child myself, what I know of my parents is not the full picture. They have their lives and their memories and their experiences. And I have only the things that they've told me or that I've observed. So I like to think that, you know, Tina essentially is like a missing piece of a puzzle, of a, a bigger puzzle that the reader kind of puts together. But we get enough of Tina. And there's one thing in particular, without giving any spoilers, a piece of that puzzle, which I give to the readers, but the two sisters never get. I quite liked that act, that offering to the readers. Well, Tina and Craig, who a partner and husband, had two daughters who are now in their 40s, but remember their mother very differently. What did the older one, Nicole, think about her mother? I think Nicole, she's much more immediately compassionate than her sister. Look, I always think of the two sisters as being like different states of water moving to transitioning to another state. So in, in those terms, Samantha is like ice slowly thawing so that she's more liquid form and Nicole is kind of more formless and like steam and she's slowly solidifying so they sort of end up in in sort of the same the same state having started in very different places. In the younger Samantha this is a quote from the book Samantha felt uneasy whenever she saw Tina with a drink of any kind even if it looked like a glass of water. Samantha really blames her mother's drinking on their parents' divorce. So what happened to Samantha after that divorce? We don't immediately know why, but at some point Samantha stopped living with uh, Tina and her sister and actually moved in with her father and her, um, his second wife. By the, by, by, yeah, at the beginning of the novel, you know that Craig, the father, is actually onto his third wife. <laughs> we find out a little bit more about that in the course of the novel. While Nicole's sort of, you know, naturally empathetic to the point of being maybe too empathetic and not sort of standing up for herself or for others, um, Samantha's the opposite. She's very judgy She's and she's full of blame. She's ready to blame absolutely everyone else except herself. Yes. This second wife, Donna Louise, taught Samantha to turn her anger into order. So as an adult, what are some of the things that Samantha gets into order? Well, Samantha is um, one of her meditative things um, is rearranging bookshelves or rearranging the CD collection. And at one point, 
rearranging Nicole's partner's record collection, much to his fury. But she also, she lives her life by a series of rules she's sort of imposed on herself and that she imposes on her long-suffering husband, um, Trent. And I think, you know, as, as with a lot of control freaks, and I have to count myself <laughs> amongst them, I'm sure my husband would have a few things to say about me and my need for order. You know, often by having those sort of rigid, rigid rules that sort of holding your life together, there's so much else that you miss that sort of falls through the cracks while you're trying to hold everything. In the middle of the book, and the book is called The Spill, is a chapter called The Spill that gives the book its title, of course. So from page 160, Imbi Nimi, would you please read? I'd be very delighted to. Tina fiddled with the radio until she'd picked up a station playing music. It was brass in pocket by the pretenders, and she began to sing along at the top of her voice. As she drove along the dusty road, she hit a series of bends and she leant into them hard, approaching them at speed and then switching to the brake at the last minute. There was something about the pressure of the brakes followed by the release of the accelerator that made her feel in control of her life again. In the back seat, Nicole had started sliding around. It was fun at first, but then her head banged hard against the door. Mum, can you slow down? She shouted over the blare of the radio. It's fine. We're fine, Tina said, more to herself than to anyone else. But then she leant too hard into the last corner and the world went into slow motion. Tina turned to Samantha beside her, worried that she would slip out of the seatbelt. She reached out to hold Samantha back and shouted both girls' names in a desperate attempt to keep them both in this world, to stop them from flying out of the car and away from her forever. Nicole, in a tangle of dunas and pillows, felt her body bounce between the roof and the seat as this car spun and then flipped and rolled, but her mind was curiously calm, as if she'd remained perfectly still. Samantha, with her mother's hand on her chest, felt like she was on the Mad Mouse at the Royal Perth show. She closed her eyes and succumbed to the ride, and then everything stopped. There was one last metallic groan as the car finished its slide along the hot gravel road, and then there was silence except for the final bars of Brass and Pockets still playing on the radio. Nicole's first thought was that she might be crying. She put her hand up to her eye, expecting to wipe away tears, but found blood instead. Samantha's first thought was that she couldn't see the sky. And Tina's first thought, after she'd seen that both her daughters were okay, was, I need a fucking drink. Mm. The spill was a chapter with a name. But many of the other chapters are given a title like Peace Number Five and a date. Why a numbered piece? Well, I had this idea of structuring the whole thing like a jigsaw puzzle, and each of those chapters set in the past are like pieces in the larger puzzle, and they come from different parts of the puzzle. So it's not like I'm handing all the pieces from, you know, the 80s and then the 90s and then the 2000s. I'm handing them to you in different order. And, and I think one of the reasons I did that was because my memory is not linear. There are, there are some experiences or events in my life which have greater weight in my mind. And, and it certainly doesn't follow some sort of traditional um, character arc, you know, in a linear style. With that idea of the sort of jumbled up memory, um, it, it kind of, you know, felt right to have all the pieces jumbled up in a box and then, yes, then slowly just hand them one, one by one to the reader and see what they can do with them. It was a good puzzle to work out and we did. <laughs> 
Now, as we said, Samantha was younger, but very organised. She arranged the party for Nicole's 21st, and when it came to her own wedding, uh, there was somebody she chose not to invite. Who was that? Well, see, the I, it, she did invite her, but did she kind of uninvite her in the same breath? So it's Tina, her mother, is not there at the reception, and the only person who seems to really notice and care is Nicole. Samantha talking to her mother, you get drunk and embarrassing and sloppy and loud and showy and you ruin everything and this is my wedding day and I need it to be perfect. (gasps) Some years later, Trent and Samantha, now with their young toddler, Rosemary, invite Nicole over for a quiet New Year's Eve. But there was a surprise that the non-drinking Samantha brought out. What was it? Well, it was a bottle of tequila, one of those bottles with the little red hat. And it is a huge surprise because Nicole is just is on a break with her dreadful boyfriend, Darren, who I invite all readers to despise as much as I despise him. But um, so she, she's gone along and it's the big museum when we're entering the new millennium. And um, she's, she's found herself you know, in this tiny flat in Shenton Park with her sister and her husband and their, you know, young daughter, thinking that she's just going to drink soft drink all night. But then suddenly there's this Mm. promise of the tequila and Samantha, in her generosity, allows um, Nicole and Trent to have one drink, Mm. one cocktail, and they've got to be very careful when they time it. (laughs) Well, it's it's such a revelation that it goes down in family folklore. Other things at the Christmas day with a ham that was not fully thawed, the fork throwing at a 40th birthday and being bridesmaids for their father's wife, number three. Now, this last occasion gave Samantha even more reason to be jealous of her sister. Who did Nicole meet there? Well, Nicole meets someone who arguably is the most perfect character ever written in literary history. I've had some people say to me, like, why is Jethro, the, um, the person that, that Nicole meets, so perfect? Like, it's anno- he's annoyingly perfect. I don't think he's perfect. In fact, I know where his, his sort of um, his foibles lie. But, um, yes, he's rich. He's, he's kind of good looking. And I think I describe him in a quiet, as a quiet kind of uh, your local accountant with undertones of George Clooney. Um, but, you know, he, and he, 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 he takes to Nicole very quickly. And, yes, that's causes Samantha endless fury. Samantha's been working so hard. She's, you know, she went to TAFE. She got her mm-hmm. accounting degree. She has been working very hard. And Nicole's been drifting along aimlessly. And then suddenly she meets the man of her dreams. Well, 10 it's, years it's later, Nicole had taken care of her mother, Tina, all this time. Samantha had resisted, even having allowing her daughter to have anything much to do with the grandmother. But Nicole was going to be away over Tina's birthday and pleaded with Samantha to drop in on their mother. So when they did, did Samantha and Rosemary find a lonely, sad, old woman? That was Samantha's hope, to show Rosemary the perils of drinking, to, you know, to to drive home some life lesson. But instead, they find Tina having, like, this amazing party. Her Mm. flat is heaving with with people having fun, playing limbo. and I think Samantha is like even more furious that the biggest problem with Tina and drinking is that Tina makes it look so much fun. Yeah. So look, Tina's sister Meg came to the funeral because we've come back to that. Nicole and Samantha had called her the ghost auntie. 
Why? Well, there's there's a there's a, an estrangement between those two sisters, which I quite liked as a sort of like a parallel storyline to the you know the present day sisters of Nicole and Samantha, and there is a mystery there, and it takes us quite a long time to actually work out the full reason why those two sisters have not been in each other's lives for almost 30 years so yes uh meg yeah, she's she's a dark horse she she comes in at the beginning we don't see her again but she drops a truth bomb that sets the course of the the rest of the novel into action there's always a difference in the way the two sisters remember things you've got nicole who always blamed herself in a quote from the book even now 30 years later i still couldn't think about it without feeling that same shame and fear like a knot in my stomach, small and tight and impossible to untie. But Samantha, she was pretty happy to just blame others for, for the history. Yeah, and I, th- I, I like to think that in her journey from ice to water that she kind of starts to take a bit more responsibility for her own part in her own story. It is very easy to kind of push blame onto our parents or to our siblings. There's no healing in that, I don't think. You know, there needs to be forgiveness in order to be able to move forward and to learn from past mistakes. So I, I felt like Samantha's journey in particular was very important. One last quote. The eternal push-pull dance of siblings. Ah, the push-pull dance of siblings. Is it something you know about? Yes, I've got two sisters ah. um, and who I love, like, I love to bits. But, you know, that's not to say that it's, it's like, you know, the Hallmark sisters sort of relationship. You know, there are times when we've been closer and times when we've been sort of not close. Um, and I've got lots of friends around me with sisters. And over the years, I've just kind of slowly cannibalised their stories of their own sister relationships. Such fascinating materials and such a, a rich, rich vein to have sort of tapped into. Well, Imbi Nimi, 2019 winner of Penguin Literary Prize with this manuscript. Yes, I was. And um, look, uh, you know, it's totally unexpected because uh, really, I mean, The Spill is not capital L literary fiction. It's it's kind of, I like to think it's high-end commercial fiction, you know, or with some literary elements. But I, I didn't think I had I stood a chance. And so when... When it was me who actually won, it completely floored me. I'd, I'd been, this is my third manuscript, so I've been trying to mm. get published for quite some time. So to finally get something over the line and in such a kind of big way was, was amazing. So I've been speaking about, with Imbi Nimi about her book, The Spill. When things happen in a family, blame can be apportioned unfairly. There could be moments of regret for things said to hurt or things not said at all. Indy, thank you very much. It was just a delight to read and meet you. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. And now it's time for David. What if Captain Cook hadn't made it home after bumping into Australia? What if he'd been shipwrecked instead? This tantalising notion is taken up in the novel On a Barbarous Coast by Craig Cormick and Harold Ludwig. So, Harold and Craig, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Craig, your narrator is James Magra, who was actually on the Endeavour and reputed to have written an account of the actual voyage, but we discover that he's fighting more than the elements when the survivors get ashore. This is not 
a cohesive society or one actually equipped to survive, those that came on the endeavour? What we've done in our telling, we've looked at as many cases we can of shipwreck survivors to try and base our story, even though it's imagined, on as close to fact as possible based on certainly other incidents of shipwreck survivors and so on. So what happens, the ship hits the reef in a storm rather than a calm night and sinks. Half the crew die. Captain Cook gets felled by a spar. He's comatose. All the officers are killed. And those survivors, you know, a third or so of the ship's crew who survive, come ashore with no clear leader. And the question asked then is, so what's going to happen? They're really afraid of this new land. They don't understand these, these strange people in this new land they're scared of. But the real thing they should be scared of is themselves, because we played them out and they start fracturing. The Marines and the sailors and the science gentlemen start fighting amongst each other. It's a fragmented society that virtually comes ashore, hierarchies and all the things they relied on simply fall apart. Harold, your narrator is Gargil. He provides an interesting account of these shipwrecked men. How would you describe his perspective? Well, Gargil, uh, a young boy that hasn't been initiated yet from the Cook uh, language group, he sees them and like all the other um, indigenous people around the planet at that time, we thought, you know, well, are these the ancestors we were waiting for to come back, like Kakawunkol and Milkandur, or were these evil spirits? So even though these guys came ashore with a fractured relationship, our cultural relationship and laws and that still existed when they come ashore, and uh, they weren't aware of what uh, how um, Aboriginal society works. And, you know, it was a interesting thing that we used uh, young men because young people all around the world are very inquisitive. And so, you know, this sets off a chain reaction of, you know, meetings and things like that. But later on in the book, the underlying story is um, where Indigenous and non-Indigenous people could understand each other as well if they uh, have the common respect for each other. Well, this is interesting. That common respect is not there because the European society really hasn't even got it for themselves. But the contrast between the two civilizations is more than apparent in their search for food. Our seasonal yeah. calendar is given to us by our creator, Yerambal. Only mm -hmm. to the unlearned eye is death by starvation a reality because not knowing where food exists means you are not entitled to be initiated. By the same That's token, right. we have those shipwrecked, completely confounded by the landscape. The woods here had trees of many shapes and sizes, thin and winding or tall and narrow. Some had low branches that were more like a bush and some bushes were more like small trees. Some appeared familiar, but others looked like they might be poisonous, trying to tempt us to them with bright flowers. So on the whole notion of food, you have the indigenous familiar with the landscape, living within the landscape, the Europeans almost trying to force the landscape to their will. You've understood something really important there is that the Europeans have always tried to force the Australian landscape to be, you know, some representation of Europe or some representation of England, um, rather than trying to understand what the landscape was offering them. Yeah, well, you know, being the seamen they were, they obviously knew a lot of stuff they could eat from the aquatic 
seen, like from the water and things like that. But where they were living, they were walking past so many different bush foods that they weren't aware of. I mean, there's a, one of the paintings of Sidney Parkinson's uh, when he came here to the Endeavour of um, the um, Guinea Gold or Red Beach. He painted this perfect picture of this tree that was a food source for us. And then you've also got one of the sailors tries to spear fish in the river only to get eaten by a crocodile. And the locals are wondering, well, why the hell did he go into the river in the first place? But what does this actually say, Craig, about the notion of discovery? It tells us a lot both about we're trying to capture the mindset of back in the, the 18th century when when the you know the world was largely being rediscovered in different ways. But Europeans came with, I guess, European-shaped glasses. And whether Cook and the Endeavour went through Tahiti or New Zealand and Australia, they were discovering things. They looked for mirrors they understood. So when they got to New Zealand, for instance, the Maori had villages and had crops and had, you know, fortifications. And the Europeans would sort of get that because that was similar to the way, you know, Europe had evolved. When they got to Australia, they just couldn't get it because the the indigenous people here they lived in tiny small groups they didn't have permanent houses they didn't have you know plantations that they could see and they just couldn't understand how they were living with the land and so they 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 tended to dismiss them up until they got to cooktown when everything changed the fragmentation of the survivors is interesting i mean how do they respond to the situation and what does the landscape do to them so the way to respond to the situation is like like all of us under um, stress, we revert to type. And so the soldiers, the Marines, their first instinct is to build a fort and start, you know, firing whatever few muskets they've got left into the, the bush to chase away what the what they perceive as the, the savages or the barbarous um, inhabitants of the land. The sailors, they revert to type and they want to mend their boat and, and, and sail away to um to find shelter somewhere else to get rescued. And the scientists and the naturalists and the gentlemen, they want to try and understand the land and understand the people. And so you have these three different groups of mindsets playing out entirely different with each other and largely shaped by the land, whether you view it as, as hostile, something to defend yourself from, whether you view it as something to flee from, or whether you view it as something to try and understand. It almost becomes in some ways a little bit like Lord of the Flies because yes. psychologically, they also fragment as well, not just physically, but psychologically, they're broken too. That's true, yes. The reaction of the Gugu Yimadir people who first encounter those that are shipwrecked is interesting. The sight of these spirits and their uselessness intrigues my people more than anything else. Now, there's a long delay before Gargil makes contact. What is this due to? And what are the challenges Gargill's people face? There was a long interval before they made contact because they were still weren't sure what these people were or where their people were their spirits because it's something they would never have thought of because they, being in Australia, they never seen white people before. It's like you and I seeing a um, spaceship landing in front of us. We'd be totally mesmerised but afraid as well. They look at the Europeans as having shells on their back. Yeah, yeah, and that's with the clothing and things like that because our people didn't need clothing. We lived in the, as Captain Cook wrote in his journals, we live in a fine climate with no want of material things. And that shows out when Cook did come here, 
um, our people discarded the beads, the nails and everything they tried to give them, but took the fish that had a practical use. There are scenes where Magra recounts events from the voyage, how Cook dealt with the Maoris, for instance. And you even have uh, a discussion about Sir Walter Raleigh's first settlement in the Americas. What do we learn from that ability to cast our eye back over uh, the events that have occurred? Well, Magra, of course, is trying to recount from the past. There's also a voice of the present because we, we always read books of the past in a frame of the present. And so being able to look at other you know, settlements like Walter Raleigh's failed Roanoke settlement in USA where all the um, settlers just disappeared shows us that you know, the question is, what do we learn from the past? Have we learned from the past at all? And that's why the whole book is premised on this what if. You know, how, how would black and white Australian relations be today if the first contact had happened to the point where at the book towards the end we see the, the few white survivors and the Indigenous people converging and coming together and understanding each other? Had that happened? And imagine then the second contact if another ship had arrived a decade or two later and they met with Indigenous people who could speak a bit of their language, who understood their mindset, who could actually communicate with them, how different Australia might be today. But it was quite a chasm to overcome in terms of, you know, the experience and the understanding. I'm intrigued by Magra's dreams of Gandhar, the crocodile. I'm wondering about the significance of this connection Magra has and how significant it is. Well, to me, you know, Gandhar is a very important part of our culture because he's not only brave, but he's strong, he's spiritual. And coming from the prehistoric times, our people had drawn him on artwork up in caves and long way from salt water. So they all knew about the crocodile. But when Magra sees it, it's, it's like his conscience is speaking to him about what must be done, what should be done, how to be patient, how to gather all the necessary information he needs to process or progress. So I think it is a, it's a perfect tie to Magra's um, understanding as well. Well, that understanding comes out because it becomes almost a spiritual connection, which highlights the divide then between the Europeans and the Indigenous and the way they look at the world. That's right. He's starting to understand you You have to respect the country, the, the animals. And this is something our people done from day dot with the management of um, uh, food resources and things like that. And so, you know, we all had laws, cultural law and sacred places for that reason. Well, it now begs the question, who is the most savage in this narrative? Yeah, that's the, the irony of the title. It's taken from a line from Sidney Parkinson on the night of the wreck. He talks about their fear of being stuck on a barbarous coast where, you know, where savages dwell. But we actually see, as the story unfolds, that the real savages are the Europeans and their, their inability to uh, to work together, but to work against each other when things start getting ugly. They were so willing to label uh, the people they came across as savage. What can Australians learn then from reimagining the Cook discovery myth? It comes back to the real 1770 interaction by Cook and the Indigenous people, where they had a perfect relationship because of there was a skirmish, but that's only because of the misunderstanding of both. But, you know, the underlying story of this book is how 
both cultures, black and white, can survive through understanding and the big banner of respect. We're going to have to end the interview there. The book is On a Barbarous Coast. The authors are Craig Cormack and Harold Ludwig, and it is, in fact, an Alan and Unwin release. So, Craig and Harold, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions. And we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay.